from the Merck Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app. And take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time. But only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, a day after our special live radio play, The Return, where Martin and Malcolm return to the present to discuss contemporary topics, we will have a real-life, real-time conversation with world-renowned scholar Dr. Claiborne Carson of Stanford, who has written books about both Malcolm and Martin. Clay Carson joins us in Hour two. In our third hour, a conversation with internationally recognized scholar and LMU professor Dr. Sean Anderson about the Black Athlete Revolt, the sport justice movement in the age of Black Lives Matter. Sean Anderson joins us live in studio in our third hour. We commence today's show, though, in dialogue with Dr. Kasanya K. Whitehead on this first day of Women's History Month, about the vital role of women in American history and culture. Uh, we should also mention that this is Black Women's History Week, the one-week overlap of Black History Month and Women's History Month. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about celebrating women who tell our stories with Dr. Kasanya K. Whitehead. After I take just two quick seconds here to tell you thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your support uh, during Black History Month. We we had an ambitious agenda of things around here. Uh, you have probably seen the K-Line train wrapped, the Metro train wrapped in KBLA. Uh, and so uh, we thank Metro for that partnership, which goes on for another uh, two or three months, I think. So if you haven't seen the trains move through the city, look out and see the K-Line. Uh, you'll see it wrapped uh, beautifully in KBLA with some of our faces on the train. So we thank again Metro for that partnership. Um, we thank Les Brown for his month-long radio residency. Uh, every weekday uh, in the month of February, Les Brown, the world-renowned motivator, joined us for a one-hour master class every day. Uh, we called it a radio residency. He's the first, but not the last to sit in for a few days at a time uh, and just download us on uh, with, with, with a master class on information that we can use to enlighten, encourage, empower, and inspire ourselves. We thank Les Brown for that. We launched the Reva Martin's program, Afternoon Drive, Reva Martin in real time. She's off to a great start and doing remarkably well. By the way, a new show launches today called The Raw Report with Robin Ayers. Today at 6 p.m., uh, you'll get entertainment. So Reva gives you uh, news, breaking news, late news, 4 to 6 every day. And then Robin comes right behind her starting today at 6 p.m. with entertainment news. Uh, it's a great three-hour block here on KBLA Talk 1580. Finally, I want to thank the mayor, uh, Karen Bass, yesterday for showing up at our Black History Month luncheon. The first but not the last. It went so well yesterday. I'm sure it'll be an annual affair now. That's what everybody uh, expected yesterday. Tavis, it's going to be annual. We shall see. It was a great turnout yesterday. Sold out audience yesterday. 
at our first uh, Black History Month luncheon. We were honoring black legends in local media yesterday. So Jim Hill and Pat Harvey, Mark Brown and Leslie Sykes, Beverly White, Sandy Banks, Press, uh, Pat Prescott. Just a great gathering yesterday. The mayor uh, came to hang out with us and did her own beautiful tribute to all these black uh, local media legends uh, that have uh, worked so hard for so many years and uh, have not been honored in the way we tried to honor them yesterday. It was a great day in L.A. yesterday, and so we want to thank um, uh, the mayor and all of those honorees who showed up to let us uh, elevate, amplify, and honor them for the great work that they have done. And I certainly want to thank um, Gerald C. Rivers and uh, and uh, Maurice Kitchen, who played uh, Martin and Malcolm yesterday in that radio play. Uh, we had not done that before. I mean, radio started this way, right? So we thought we'd do a throwback and um, uh, imagine as a radio play. And Maurice Kitchen wrote the script. Uh, but imagine Martin and Malcolm coming back 50-plus years later and what they would have to say about the contemporary issues that we're dealing with right now. And apparently uh, it was a hit. Your responses yesterday on social media and beyond talking about that one-hour radio play. We encored it yesterday, uh, and uh, perhaps somewhere down the road we'll get it back on again. Uh, but your response to that return uh, radio play yesterday was amazing. It was humbling, and so I want to thank, again, Gerald. I want to thank Maurice, and I want to thank Iona Morris Jackson, who directed that radio play yesterday. Huh, there's a mouthful. It was a full month of February, and I just want to take a moment just to say thank you uh, for my team here and all of you for listening and participating in all these events and projects that we did. Of course, Lynn Richardson was at Chase Bank uh, for a, a wealth seminar, and many of you came out for that. So it was just a month full of activities. That's what a black talk station ought to do, right? Uh, we believe that we're at our best when we're empowering, enlightening, encouraging, and inspiring you, trying to get you to re-examine the assumptions you hold, to expand your inventory of ideas. And we tried to do that in the month of February, as we do every day around here. When we come forward, we'll commence our conversation with Dr. Karsanya K. Wise Whitehead about Women's History Month and specifically the role that black women have and continue to play in making America a place that is worth living and working in. I can't wait to talk to Kay when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. I am delighted as always to be in conversation with Dr. Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead. She is a associate professor of communication and African-American studies at Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, Three-time Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, author, uh, award-winning talk show host in uh, the city of uh, Baltimore on WEAA 88.9 FM. Uh, busy, busy calendar. How she has time to talk to me, I don't know, but I'm grateful for the hour I get. Uh, Kay, <laughs> how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. It was a joy listening to all of your Black History Month specials. I'm like, oh, he's as busy as I am. You know, it's been crazy, <laughs> and I apologize for having you hold for a few minutes, but I wanted to get that big no thank problem. you out to all of our audience and all of our team here. It was quite the month, and uh, I'm feeling it right about now, I can tell you that. <laughs> It, it comes with a price. Uh, uh, but as you know, when you're building a black uh, talk station, it, it takes some effort. It takes some work. It takes some yes, doing. But uh, we're all the indicators are pointing in the right direction, and we are just thrilled about the month that we celebrated uh, in February. Before I jump into our conversation, uh, yesterday on this program, in this uh, very segment yesterday, this first hour, we were joined by Brandon Johnson, uh, Kay, who is a Cook County Commissioner in Chicago, running for mayor in Chicago. And I'm sure by now you've seen the news. If you haven't, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor in Chicago, lost yesterday. Uh, uh, you good people listening. Uh, this African-American mayor who made history uh, as a gay woman in Chicago. She uh, had a one-term 
uh, mayoralty, uh, having lost last night, first mayor in 40 years in Chicago to lose uh, a re-election bid. But um, uh, Lori Lightfoot is on her way out. But our guest yesterday in our one was Brandon Johnson, who's a Cook County commissioner, who I told you yesterday had a really, really good shot at making the runoff. Well, guess what? He did. He made it. He made it. He made so it. it's <laughs> it's made it. it's a showdown now. A showdown in Chicago between Paul Vallis, uh, a white male, the only white person in the race. There were nine people running, one white person, and he came and he in. Made it to the finals, of course. Yeah, and came in and came in first place. Uh, Brandon uh, Brandon came in second. I think Brandon had twenty percent. Of course, there were nine people running. Brandon had about twenty percent. Uh, Paul Vallis, um, the white man I'm talking about, who used to run the school system there. Uh, had about 36%, and everybody else had numbers here and there. Um, but it's going to be a serious runoff with this brother in Chicago. Let me start with this, Kate. What do you make of the fact that at the moment, and if Brandon can beat Paul Vallis in this runoff, it will remain the same, but the four largest cities in America right now are all headed by African-American mayors. In 2023, what do you make of that? No, I'm very excited about that. I also have this feeling sometimes when, when issues like this happen, when you start talking about crime, you start talking about our communities, then the, the rush is to put us in charge of it, to fix it. Yeah. And, and we don't have enough time mm-hmm. uh, given to us or extended to us to be able to work through, to make mistakes, to figure it out. Lori Lightfoot was given no time. Right? Mm-hmm. You either fix it now or we're going to move you out the way because they have less tolerance for, for black folks overall and specifically less tolerance for black women. So, mm-hmm. so my heart goes out to Karen Bass. I'm thinking about what does it mean because, you know, I live in a city, in Baltimore City. We've had three black women to be mayor here. Yeah, Sheila yeah. Dixon, Stephanie Rollins, Blake to Catherine Pugh. And, and there's a lot of pressure as yeah. a black woman being mayor and a lot more pressure. If you're just a black man coming in and they want you to fix it, make it better, make it perfect, and you don't have as much time to do it. You know, I say two things all the time. It's always a, a good sign that things have uh, have gone to hell in a handbasket when they let black folk run anything. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when they give Barack yeah. Obama the country, when they give people mayorities, oh, yeah. uh, they say, you know, oh, things yeah. are so oh, bad yeah. now, we're going to let y'all Negroes fix it, and then we'll come and take it back, right? Yeah, so they'll, they'll let us be mayor or, or governor or, or president, for that matter, when things get so bad. And to your point about Karen Bass, I saw her yesterday and told her, you know, in our private conversation, I was praying for her, uh, because this thing, what happened to Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, a one-term black mayor, is a cautionary tale. There's a lot on the plate of Karen Bass in this city. There are a lot of expectations. She spoke at our event yesterday, our luncheon, and everywhere she goes, of course, she talks about the issue of homelessness, as she should. Uh, But I said a prayer for Karen Bass last night because, again, there's a lot of pressure on you in one term. They want people want stuff fixed and they want it fixed right now. And, of course, they're going to put a greater level of expectation on you than other people. Um, So we're uh, to your point, uh, Kate, I appreciate you saying that we're we're praying for for Karen Bass in this city. Speaking of black folk in uh, high places, how's uh, how's the new governor doing in Maryland so far? (laughs) Governor Westmore, mm-hmm. um, I, I love, oh, I mean, he's been on my show a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, he is, he's extremely progressive, but he's also very aware of the American political landscape. He is someone who has come through the system, come through the military, so has a different and unique understanding of America mm-hmm. and the military structure that's at play. So he is walking a tight line. He's still in the honeymoon period. Yeah. So he is able to advance a lot of ideas. The honeymoon period is very nice, right? And then, of course, they turn when things like snow removal isn't done. Mm-hmm. They have long lines for transit mm-hmm. if they're concerned about crime. But they're giving him a moment. And I think that he is on the right path. If nothing else, it's already a victory for those of us that live in Baltimore because we finally have a mayor after eight years of the previous mayor who saw Maryland as one place and Baltimore as something else. Yeah. 
Governor Westmore considers Baltimore to be a part of Maryland, if not one of the central components of the, the state. Yeah. What do you make of that? I'm, I'm, I'm working my way toward Women's History Month here, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about that. But what do you make of the fact um, that there are, in fact, politicians, not just in Maryland, but there are parts around the country where this this is played out for years, where there are African-American hubs, there are cities that are uh, uh, populated uh, uh, most uh, uh, significantly by African-Americans, and the politicians who run the state write those places off. You've been following as I have the story in Jackson, Mississippi right now. In yes. Jackson, they are they yes. are they are literally trying to give these black folk in Jackson a different, a different system justice. of jurisprudence. <laughs> exactly. A, a different yes. a different justice system. So what do you, what do you make of places like Baltimore, Jackson or elsewhere where again the white folk in charge of the state, the white folk in charge at a higher level, just completely write off and maltreat these black populations? I think this is a great way to connect it back to Black History Month. Since it just ended yesterday, although we both understand that Black History is American history, but the theme for Black History Month 2023 was Black resistance. Mm -hmm. It was all about the ways in which we resist, the ways in which we push back, the ways in which we uncover what has been hidden. What you're getting to right now is the central heart of racist neighborhood policies. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to give Black people the structures in their community and then remove them, allow them to fail, sit back and blame them for their own failure, and then not step in to provide them with the assistance they need to even get back to where they used to be before you pulled your assistance. You are, and essentially, you're setting up this white supremacist ideology that black folks are failing from their own accord, mm -hmm. not because of the redlining, not because of the water, not because of the, the poor educational system, but because of something they're doing wrong. And that's what we're dealing with just here in Baltimore City. Baltimore City is, of course, a tale of two, maybe three cities, depending upon your perspective. But it's a great way to look at the landscape of America when you look at the black butterfly, which are the black neighborhoods in Baltimore City, and the white L, right? Mm -hmm. the, the white economically advantaged communities here in Baltimore City who are living a very different life and experience than those that live in predominantly black economically challenged communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a conundrum to to be sure, uh, and um, uh, in many ways, one could argue, uh, at least I would argue, that it's uh, uh, that it's a benign neglect. It's not just something that happens. It's a benign neglect of these communities. It's benign yeah, exactly. And it's we, intentional. Yeah. it's intentional, and it's long term, yeah. and it's it's not going to change. So yes, I, I get excited. Of course, we all do. We get excited when we have black faces in high places, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But we also know, just like the expectations that, that white folks put on Barack Obama, they want you to come in, they want you to heal the sick and raise the dead and walk <laughs> on water, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, they expect you to be the Messiah, yeah. and then when you turn out to be human, then, then there's no space for you. Yeah. When we have other white men who ascend into office, and we know they're human before they get there, yeah. and all they do is expose their humanness every single day, and we give them the space to, to say, do, think, move however they want, because there's always this, this forgiveness that's extended upon white power brokers that's not extended to black folks in power. Yeah, I was thinking while you were talking, Kay, and then if you are uh, bad enough, uh, to walk on water, they complain that you can't swim, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can't swim. I, I was just, you know, it's so funny because I was, I, I'm thinking about what uh, what Ben Crump said at the NAACP Image Awards, yeah, right? So we yeah. have to be prepared to, to fight for our children until hell freezes over, and then we got to be prepared to fight on the ice. That's right. right. So that's right. even if hell freezes over, we're still going to have to fight because that's not going to be enough. So just get, get your cold gear ready because then we're going to be fighting on the ice. Yeah, I, I, ben, ben is my dear friend and brother, as is Westmore for that matter, but uh, I didn't see Ben's speech at the Image Awards, but I tell you, you are the third person on this show this week 
to quote Ben Crump from that speech, his closing line. You. I love it. it res- I love it. That I li- have been standing on that. <laughs> no, that, that line resonated. The black folk have to fight. I'm telling you. Yeah, until hell freezes over. And when it does, we got to more. fight on the ice, man. So. We got to fight on the ice. Because, but, but, I mean, essentially, what, what Ben Crump tapped into, and I love him, you know, our, our warrior lawyer. Yeah. What Ben Crump tapped into <laughs> is we essentially are going to be fighting for the heart and soul of this nation yeah. until the very end. And then when we get to the end, we're going to have to fight some more. Yeah. So to that point, to the, to the, to the Ben Crump uh, uh, comment at the Image Awards, to our, <laughs> earlier, com- to our earlier conversation about, uh, about what happened to Lori Lightfoot in, in Chicago and how that's happened to three other black women mayors in Baltimore. And now we've got Karen Bass in L.A. As I said a moment ago, a cautionary tale for Karen Bass. What can happen to you uh, in, uh, in your first term? Uh, given what happened to Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, what role, um, uh, Kay, do you see black women playing, to your point now, uh, in saving and redeeming the soul of this nation? <laughs> I'm reminded of the words of Zora Neale Hurston, right? Yeah. right about black women being the mule of the world, mm-hmm. that we have to be able to carry the world on our back. I think black women have always been looked at as being the saviors, mm. as being the redeeming soul of this nation, uh, to being the canaries in the minefield, yelling out and passing out when mm-hmm. things have gone too far. And I think we have to, as black women in 2023, we have to reject the notion that we have to be a savior, because we're the savior at what cost? Mm. What is the physical, emotional, mental, and psychological cost that we pay? Mm-hmm. to save this nation, to speak up and to step into the moment. I think that this is, as Black Women's History Week, I think it's, it's a great moment to stop and reflect and say, what have we done? Have we done enough? And are we receiving any benefits from the work that we have consistently done to, to push this neighbor, this country back into the right direction? Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm wrestling with your, 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 your frame um, and your notion of black women needing to reject this notion that they have to always be the saviors. The flip side of that yeah. is, if y'all don't come to the rescue, if black, if the black woman cavalry doesn't show up, then Joe Biden ain't president. And I can run a long list of other things that <laughs> don't happen go in this all country. Way yeah. So my, so my, so, so, all the way, I mean, come so, on. Yeah. So my, so my point. So my point <laughs> is, if people, if black women were to take your advice, Kay, and reject that pull, uh, that tug, uh, that frame that they have to be saviors, what happens? To to the nation? What happens to black people? Well, I guess it's a two-part answer. One, in the rejection of this this notion that we have to always be the savior, I couple that with practicing radical self-care. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you can save this country by putting yourself on the cross, and then you're falling out. You're dealing with cancer. You're dealing with fibroids. You're dealing with high blood pressure. And the country has moved on to the next savior that they're willing to put out in front of the movement while you're passing out somewhere. Mm-hmm. I say as black women, we have to practice radical self-care. We have to carry this kind of idea of shared leadership, of knowing we don't want to just sacrifice one person. We're all going to stroll to the polls, and those of us that can't stroll, we'll push them to the polls. And those that can't be pushed, you rest, and you give me your ballot, and I'll carry it to the poll myself. Like we can share the leadership so that it's a shared burden and no one has to be sacrificed so this country can win. Because ultimately, when the country wins, if black women's agendas are not being met, the country has won, but we have not. Mm-hmm. Um, you made this uh, use this phrase earlier, Kate. I want to come back to this notion of black faces in high places. Um, one could argue 
that increasingly we're seeing the faces of black women uh, in some pretty high places. Is that, to your mind, overrated? No, it's not enough, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm as excited as anyone. I think the last time I was on your show, um, maybe a year ago, we talked about the Sister Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm-hmm. Like, I am mm-hmm. excited to see black and brown faces from Kamala Harris in this, those number two positions, speaking for the White House, doing the hard work. Yes, I do think that's a win. The goal is what is the agenda that we're trying to push? What is it that, that black women want to accomplish in this country? Like, like what, what's a victory for us? And can we begin to, to dismantle the notions of survival and the notions of victory through a white lens and a white gaze and turn that back around and say, so this is what it looks like for us. Mm-hmm. Is it about getting jobs? Is it about closing the wage pay gap? Is it about, you know, reconstructing our schools? Is it about talking about black health care? What does winning look like because it's not just one black woman becoming a supreme court justice mm-hmm. that is an individual victory and we can all cry and, and be very happy about that but if we still have black folks who are going through the court system and dealing with the racism in the court then it's not a collective victory yeah to your point um that uh, we have to be clear about how we define what winning actually means let, let me let me i want to frame this the right way um we've been talking here for the last minute or two about these african-american women who have ascended to positions of you know of authority and power in this country as mayors, as Supreme Court justices, on, on uh, sitting on the Fed, uh, there are a long list of uh, as vice president. <laughs> you know, okay. um, there are all kinds of folks we could talk about. Um, I wonder, though, broadly speaking, how you think in this moment the country writ large regards or does not regard black women as an entity. Does that make sense? That does make sense, and that, that's a great question. And I, and if I could, I want to kind of kind of piece it out. Sure, sure. Because I, cause I think there are two layers here, right? So there's this notion of, of, of black respectability. So, so who is allowed to be at the table? When you put out this laundry list of black women, and it's still not enough, you know, the laundry list of black women who've made it to some of these, you know, vaulted positions, whether you're with the Fed or you're in the White House or you're mm-hmm. in the Supreme Court, yes, but, but it's a handful, with the overall way that black women are still mistreated in the greater society, those that have not crossed over when you start talking about the intersections between education, class, race, and gender, those who've crossed over who are able to get to the table versus the greater majority of black women who are still underpaid, who are still mistreated, and who are still dealing with a lot of the limitations that come along with being black and being a woman and being part of an economically challenged community. So that's what I mean about trying to figure out if, if it's a collective win, is it helping the least of us, black women who are doing the, the most struggle, the most work, or is it a victory for those of us that are, that are professors, that are judges, that are lawyers? Like, it's a collective victory in that sense, but who are the sisters that we're leaving behind, and who is speaking for them? And that's why I like the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Mm-hmm. So intersectionality means that I cannot stand in my space and celebrate all the victories of black women, but I know there's still a large majority of black women who are still being underpaid today, even if I am yeah. not. Our guest in this first hour is Dr. Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead. Uh, you can see why she's my favorite uh, talk show host in the city of Baltimore. Um, you might have seen her in episodes uh, two, three, and four of Chuck, uh, Chuck D's documentary, uh, Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World. 
showcased on PBS in February. So you uh, maybe trying to figure out where do I know that voice? Where do I know that name? You may have seen her in, in Chuck D's uh, powerful documentary series, uh, Fight the Power. Again, how hip hop changed the world. We'll continue with Kay when we come forward. And I want to just tell her now where I want to go after news, traffic, and sports. And I want to ask her. I mean, it's, an indiv- it's an individual question. Anybody can answer it differently. And as we take in her response, you'll be processing your own, right? Uh, and that is uh, to give me three, four, five African-American women in history who she thinks are under-celebrated for whatever reason she thinks are under-celebrated in Women's History Month, in Black Women's History Week. We'll get Kay's response to that and a great deal more when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead, uh, talk show host on WEAA 88.9 FM in Baltimore city um, also a professor at uh, Loyola Marymount Loyola University in Maryland we got an LMU here and as a matter of fact our guest in our third hour today is a professor at LMU so two Loyolas hanging out at KBLA Talk 1580 today in this hour the one from Maryland and LMU uh, from LA uh, will be in our third hour Dr. Sean Anderson uh, talking about uh, sports uh, and revolting on the part of black athletes we'll get to that in our third hour our second hour by the way is Clay Carson talking about Martin and Malcolm. Yesterday you may have heard our uh, radio play The Return uh, about Martin and Malcolm coming back to Earth 50 plus years after their assassinations to sit for a conversation with a guy named Tavis Smiley about contemporary issues. Uh, And it was fascinating to hear what Martin and Malcolm might say to the issues that we're wrestling with in real time. And uh, you might note uh, or might want to know, uh, should know in fact, that most of what you heard yesterday in terms of Martin's responses to my questions and Malcolm's responses to my questions as played by these two brilliant actors are things they said in their lifetime. So just process that for a moment, that here we are in 2023 still wrestling with issues that Martin and Malcolm from their grave are offering us uh, responses to, offering us ways to frame what we're processing our way through and reminding us that when we fight, we win. So hope you enjoyed that um, radio play, uh, The Return, yesterday. Um, it's been, uh, again, a quite busy month of February. And now here we are in March, which is Women's History Month. This week happens to be uh, uh, Black Women's History Week, the one-week overlap sort of Black History Month and Women's History Month. And uh, no better person to be talking to in this hour about that than uh, than Kay Whitehead. So Kay, I said a moment ago before news traffic and sports, I wanted to just get your take. Um, I'm laughing because some years ago um, I did a curated uh, an art exhibit that traveled the country before the 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 world famous Black Museum now <laughs> opened in D.C. We had a we had an art the exhibit. Blacksonian. Exactly the, the Black Smithsonian. Exactly before it opened, um, we curated uh, a, a, a a tour. Uh, called America, I Am, the African-American imprint. And I literally went around the world to collect 400 amazing items that told the story of our contributions to this country. And that tour traveled America for four years. Many of the items that we found and curated for that tour are now on permanent display in the Black Smithsonian. Uh, And so um, it was a great opportunity for us, again, for four years uh, to tour the country with uh, this exhibit that really told uh, the story of our contributions to the nation. I say that because... Uh, as a part of that exhibit, I was asked to uh, uh, edit a book that picked, that selected the 50 greatest African-Americans of all time. 
Now, can you mm. imagine the pressure? <laughs> oh, that must have been hard. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, once you get back, once you get through King X, you it, know, exactly. Andrew Davis, exactly. Like, where do you go? Because there's so many. Yeah. yeah. So the book is called African American Legends. It's a beautiful, beautiful coffee table book. It's out of print now. If you can get it, you would love it. It's a beautiful coffee table book that showcases these gorgeous photos. The book is in full color. Great stories, great narratives about these 50 great Americans as I went about the process of working with the team to select these persons. And then came the question, which one are you going to put on the cover of the book? And that was another conversation. Oh, I'm raising that only because I'm curious as to your take on a number of African-American women uh, in history who you think are under-celebrated, under-discussed. Talk to me, Kay. So thank you for that, because I think that so often, and I do this because I go into schools like I know you do as well, mm -hmm. and when I talk to young people, it starts with, well, who do you know in African-American history? Tell me everything you know, mm -hmm. right? And young people, because unfortunately, the way we teach black history in schools is if it's not American history, mm -hmm. and we collapse it into one month, I mean, students will start with, oh, Harriet Tubman, and then she ran away, and then she met Dr. King, they got married, they caught a bus <laughs> up north, you know, they jumped a broom, they had a son, Barack Obama, and it's just, <laughs> and collapse That's hilarious, that is hilarious. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't pull it apart, so because of that, I <laughs> like to put onto the table names they haven't heard of to yeah. kind of help complicate their understanding that American history is not Tubman, King, and Obama, Ooh, right? Yeah. All amazing people, but there's just a lot more. <laughs> I, 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 you like my story. No, uh, trust me. I tell you now, that clip will be played again on this radio station. I can assure you that. That's the best clip I've heard in a long time. <laughs> That's funny, Kay. I'm sorry. It's hilarious. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so with the, the black woman I'm putting out, um, the first one is Reverend Dr. Pauli Mary. Mm. And she was a cornerstone of Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka when she was the only woman enrolled at Howard Law School and at the top of her class, by the way. Mm. When they were talking about Jim Crow, it was Reverend Murray who said, look, why don't we challenge a separate in separate but equal? Before that, they had been charging the piece around equality. And that didn't work. Mm. So instead, they challenged separate and equal. And it became the basis of a book she wrote back in 1950 called State's Laws on Race and Color. And NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall, who we all know, called that book the Bible of Brown v. Board of Education. So mm. Reverend Dr. Anna Pauline Pauli Murray. So I'll start with her. Okay. The second person I would add is a woman by the name of Maude Ballou. People don't know who this is, but Maude Ballou was approached by her husband's friend, this young upstart minister and activist, asked her to be his personal secretary. And that young upstart minister, of course, was Dr. King. Mm -hmm. So she was his right hand from 1955 to 1960. Like, she was with him through the Montgomery Bus Boycott, the publication of his first book, Strive Towards Freedom. Uh, she worked with him on the Prayer Pilgrimage for Peace in D.C. But her work with him... She was number 21. In 1957, she was number 21 on the Montgomery list of persons and churches most vulnerable to violent attacks. Mm. And she was on that list simply because she was his secretary. Her house was bombed and her children's lives were threatened. So Maude Ballou is someone I want to put on the table. That's two. Mm -hmm. I got three more. Go ahead. Three is Diane Nash. Oh, yeah. Who we should all know. Freedom mm -hmm. writer, nonviolent student activist of desegregation. They don't know the work of what 
Diane Nash did and the way in which she organized sit-ins. She set up the segregated lunch calendars in Nashville. Like she took over responsibility for the Freedom Rides, then go and find out about the work of Diane Nash, particularly as it pertains to the Congress of Racial Equality core. And then, of course, SNCC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth one for me, and I got two more, uh, Dorothy Ahai, Dr. Dorothy Ahai. Oh, yeah. In addition to being a former president of my, of my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, but she <laughs> co-founded the Center for Racial Justice. She served as the president of the National Council of Negro Women. And, of course, she was in the White House. And when you had that big six, she was number seven. Remember, mm-hmm. Dorothy Ahai, they told her to step out the photograph so they could just have black men That's right. with JFK and not this black woman. She would sit at the table, and they said she used to do knitting during the meetings, and she later said she did meetings so she wouldn't scream out as they were talking about ways to exclude black women from participating (laughs) and being on the program for the march on Washington. And then finally, uh, someone who's also really not well-known is Anna Arnold Hedgeman. She was the executive director of the National Council for Permanent Fair Employment Practices, first black woman to hold a high council position in New York. Uh, And she actually helped to organize the 63 March on Washington and her work working in New York on behalf of black people, people who are economically challenged, uh, is untold. I mean, it's just people don't talk about the way in which she pushed for fair employment practices in New York. Yeah, that's a that's a great list. Um, you, you never know what you're going to get when you ask a question like that. Uh, obviously, <laughs> someone as bright as Kay Whitehead, uh, who, who teaches some of this stuff uh, at uh, Loyola yeah. University in Maryland. Um, uh, so I'm not surprised uh, by the depth uh, and the range of her list. Um, but I but I love asking questions like this because at, at the end of the day, as I say all the time, I always want to walk out of the studio smarter than when I came in. And you start jotting down those names, and you say, "Okay, I got some research to do today uh, to learn more about these persons that that Kay just spoke of." Uh, but I, I had goosebumps when you were talking, though, uh, Kay, because in my lifetime, I am often speaking of Black History. I I am grateful. Um, I am I am eternally grateful for all of the the opportunities that God has blessed me to have in my career. And I, I pretty much talked to everybody over the course of my career. And uh, it is the case that Dorothy Height was a friend of mine. Um, and really? Oh, I spent a lot wow. of time spent a lot of time with Dr. Height. Uh, and uh, whenever she'd come to L.A., uh, I'd wow. have the honor of picking her up and driving her around and just, just taking care of uh. Dr. Height. And I would never go to D.C. Uh, without going to visit her at, the, uh, at her headquarters office uh, there in D.C. And Diane Nash is still my friend. She was on this program a few oh, months yeah. ago. Yeah. So we had, amazing. Yeah. When she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, we had her on as a guest on this program. So uh, she's still my friend, still strong, living in Chicago. Uh, but just a wonderful, wonderful person. But I think about the people that I've had a chance to, to, to know uh, and to, 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 to interview and some to befriend even in my lifetime. So I celebrate uh, those two persons on that list who I actually knew personally, uh, Dr. Hype, and still am friends with uh, Diane Nash in Chicago at this very moment. When we come forward, um, Kay raised another issue earlier that I want to come back to when you talk about black women and the role they've played historically in this country. And, and her suggestion that we, that black women, that is, have to stop accepting this role to be the saviors all the time for everything, for everybody, and focus more on a number of things, including what she called radical self-care. I want to come to her in a moment and ask her how she reads in 2023 all of the health disparities that still exist. I mean, I mean, major health disparities that still exist even in 2023 when it comes to the health of black women in particular, we'll get to that in a bit more when we come forward with uh, Kasanya K. Wise Whitehead on KBLA Talk 1580. Hey, Whitehead, um, your thoughts on 
this notion of radical self-care that black women have to engage in that you raised earlier uh, and the reality that in so many categories, there's still a huge health disparity, a huge divide in the health that white women are afforded in this country and that black women are not. It is something um, that I'm struggling with a lot. And I appreciate the question because we know that right now black women are dealing with, with higher mortality rates, that uh, we're dealing with um, higher rates of, of dying during childbirth. Uh, we're dealing with higher rates of breast cancer. Like we can go through all of the issues and in every single category when we are compared against uh, our colleagues who are white or Asian American or Hispanic, we come out higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it impacts our community more. During the time of COVID-19, black women were four times as likely to be diagnosed with COVID-19, even though black men were four times as likely to die from it. So these issues are part of the stress that come along with the weathering that happens to black women. So when I was talking earlier about this radical self-care, and we've been talking about this in the community for years. What does it mean for black women to center themselves, to finally give themselves permission to put their needs, their health, uh, their feelings of fatigue and frustration in the center of the discussion rather than, than on the fringes? Mm-hmm that we actually have to intentionally take care of ourselves. It's this notion that, that I've been just telling my own self uh, coming out of Black History Month that I really have to learn how to stop setting myself on fire so other people can be warm. Like, mm. I really have to think about mm. that, that if I am the person and I'm not getting what I need so I can stay healthy, mm. so I can see my sons grow up, so I can, you know, grow gray and grow old and, and sit in the shade of the country about help to make better, then the work doesn't need mean anything to me if i am physically unable to enjoy it you're dropping bars today Kay. you are dropping bars today <laughs> i I'm, I'm still stuck on 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 uh, on your frame of black history that uh too many young people uh advance when you go to these <laughs> classrooms i'm still stuck on that clip uh, and here you are now raising this notion of setting yourself on fire so that other folk can be warm that man uh, that, that, that one got me, that one got me. Uh, and too many black women I know, too many black women, you know, um, have succumbed to that, setting themselves on fire so that others can be warm. Our remaining moments for the K Whitehead when we come forward on KBLA talk 1580. It's occurred to me that all three hours of our show today, we're talking to three brilliant scholars. We talk to smart people all the time, but three notable scholars, uh, all three hours of the day show K Whitehead in this hour, next hour, Clay Carson, uh, and our third are Dr. Sean Anderson. So three brilliant black intellectuals uh, make up uh, the uh, the show today, and I'm, I'm, I couldn't be happier about it. Um, Kay, let me let me let me raise this in the four or five minutes we have left here. Um, again, back to something you said earlier in this conversation. I've just been trying to keep keep up with you, which ain't easy to do. <laughs> so <laughs> this this issue that you raised, I've been thinking about this literally for the last forty minutes um, as we've been talking about other issues. This issue of black respectability that you raised uh, is something that I wrestle with uh, often uh, in my work and witness. And I guess the the question I want to ask broadly is whether black respectability is on us or on them. Does that frame make sense? Mm. It it does make sense. Uh, This idea of what what does respectability politics mean, Mm. right? So we know that the work of Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who won the Presidential Medal under Barack Obama, yep. noted historian who used to chair the uh, history department up at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, she first put out this notion of what does it mean to play 
respectability politics. Mm-hmm. Who was allowed to be a part of the discussion? What did it matter the way you were dressed, the way you showed up? Did you have a two-piece suit on? Um, think about Coretta Scott King when you were at the march and you're doing the whole thing in heels mm-hmm. because you're showing up a certain way in the space. Now, I know that notion has been challenged by a number of people, from, from Brittany Cooper to others, right? That this respectability politics is one we must break apart. But for me, when I think about what are the boxes and the spaces where I'm trying to, to do my work, when I show up in that space, how do I show up as my full self? How do I show up knowing I, do, I no longer have to wear the mask? I can show up exactly as I am, and I can do the work that needs to be done. Noting that to get there, I'm very clear that to get there, I have degrees behind my name. I have awards behind my name. I have a ton of work behind my name. So now I can show up as myself because you already see where I stand. I want to be able to help young women, young black women, show up regardless of whether you have a Ph.D. You show up fully as who you are, knowing that you deserve to be in that space because you're presence alone transforms that space. In 2023, do you think that black women, as we celebrate uh, Women's History Month and Black Women's History Week, do you think that black women are still wearing the mask? Are they still donning it? No, I think that there are, there's a large community of black women who are saying that we no longer have to play by the rules, that we can actually change the game. And in changing the game, we change the rules. We move the markers of success. And, and that's because we've had so many black women who've gone before us to open up the way. The women I mentioned earlier, the Angela Davises of the world, people that have sacrificed so that I can stand here as my full self and I can be authentic and I don't have to wear the mask. I, I think about five quick points that, that I bring into my experience, right? This idea of what does it mean to resist? What does it mean to reform? What does it mean to rest, to reset, and then to repeat? Every step of the way, Mm -hmm. I'm going through these notions, but resting is a part of it because even when you rest, you understand you're going to have to go back and you've got to repeat the process because the system still takes a lot to actually change. It's a powerful list. Resist, reform, rest, reset, repeat. Resist, reform, rest, reset, and repeat. I told you, Kay just drops bars every time she shows up. I've got 60 seconds left. Let me close with this. Um, We're talking about the history uh, today uh, of black women in this country. Uh, A closing question about the future of black women. How do you see the future? What do you see as the trajectory for the future of black women? Oh, the future is very bright. I am so excited about the young sister Gen Zers and the way that they are saying that what you have done, talking about folks like me, Gen X folks, what you have done has not been enough. We're going to show up and we're going to change the game that you've been playing because we have learned our lessons and we've learned them well. So I am supporting the next generation of scholars, activists, leaders, judges, because I think they are the ones we've been waiting for. Our job is to get out the way when they get here. She's a scholar. She's a documentary filmmaker. She's an author. She's an award-winning radio host. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you may have seen her in Chuck D's documentary, Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World. She's just uh, <clears throat> an all-around uh, good sister, uh, provocative thinker, uh, noted public intellectual, and as I said earlier, and always say, my favorite talk show host in Baltimore City, Dr. Kasanya, <laughs> K. Wise Whitehead. Good to have you on again. We'll do it somewhere down the road. Anytime. All right. Thank you, sir. Stay strong. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. Afternoons, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.